A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is sponsored in honor of the first yard site of Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory was one of the great Torah personalities of our generation. To help celebrate his Torah and to commemorate his first yard site, the OU and Lincoln Square Synagogue are presenting a special live stream event this coming Tuesday, October 26, 2021 at 7 p.m. 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It will be live streamed at ou.org slash Rabbi Sachs. And of course, I'll post that link uh, in the uh, description of the episode, in the text. Uh, He was an international religious leader, a philosopher, an award-winning author, and a respected moral voice. And Rabbi Sachs was the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom for 22 years between 1991 and 2013. He was described by the Prince of Wales as a light unto this nation and by former British Prime Minister Tony Blair as an intellectual giant. Rabbi Sachs was a frequent and sought-after contributor to radio, television and the media, the press, both in Britain and around the world. Rabbi Sachs, who offered, authored excuse me, 35, over 35 books, was a renowned public speaker, and he was often invited to deliver lectures and talks at prestigious academic institutions and venues around the world. His 2017 TED conference talk, with almost 2 million views, was listed by TED's founder Chris Anderson as one of the top 10 talks of that year. Rabbi Sachs was also knighted by the Queen of England in 2005 and made a life peer when he took his seat in the House of Lords in October 2009. So I personally vouch for this OU event on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, October 26th. It should be fascinating, very interesting, very engaging to have a great event about this great man. So I'm going to post the link. I personally am registering myself. So I think that uh, many of our listeners will... Uh, many listeners of Jewish History Soundbites will enjoy this event, uh, so um, so go for it, go and enjoy, and it should be uh, you know an inspiration and what to learn about uh, should be very interesting. So in honor of that, I'm going to speak a little bit about the British Chief Rabbinate and the uh, fascinating biography of of Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs and. Just because I'm talking about the Lord and what the Lord said, it's not because Jewish history soundbites has ventured into Bible criticism, but this is a different type of Lord. This is a Lord 
in England. And uh, in England, there's apparently lots of lots of lords. Uh, so I guess it's not monotheism. It's a different type of uh, idea. I myself uh, personally um, was introduced. I never met Rabbi Sachs uh, personally. Uh, I never saw him, never never met him. But I've read a few of his books. That's how I got introduced to him. And it was brilliant. Sometimes I had to read like a page a few times to even understand what he was talking about. Very deep, very wise, incisive. So I really enjoyed several of his books. I always got into him because he, he was so so brilliant, so engaging and fresh, creative ideas. But his role was officially the British chief uh, rabbinate, which is really a fascinating topic in a general sense as well. By the way, I also think that the British chief rabbinate is a very relevant topic because the British Empire used the model of chief rabbi in many of their co- colonies. Um, the chief rabbi of the empire was sort of officially uh, the counterpart of the, uh, arch, the, 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 the Archbishop of Canterbury, I think it's called. Um, so they used that model of the clergy, of the head Jewish rabbi, the chief rabbi in many of their colonies and in, in South Africa and other places, and most importantly for, for contemporary Jewish life in Palestine. And the chief rabbinate was formed by the British. Um, there was a Sephardic uh, model under the Ottoman Turkish Empire, the Chacham Bashi, um, but the British expanded it, also created an Ashkenazi version of it, and Rav Cook, of course, was the first uh, government-recognized chief rabbi by the British. So they established it essentially on the model, and the chief rabbinate is still uh, quite present in today's uh, contemporary Israel life. So in general, just as a a relevant topic, the office of the chief rabbinate in in England and of the British Empire um, is is fascinating and also uh, quite relevant to understanding both English Jewry and even, to a certain extent, the modern state of Israel and how that post is filled, of course, with many modifications in Israel, but uh, the core of it, uh, uh, its origins are in Britain. Um, there's the role of the chief rabbi both in relation to the British Jewish community and to the British government, and also for many years it was the chief rabbi of the British Empire. Today I think it's officially called the Commonwealth, but for many years it was about the British Empire, um, and how the post evolved over time in the various primarily German rabbis who filled the post, who were hired and filled the post. Um, Some of them were quite prestigious personalities. Some of them were quite interesting. Some of them have some entertaining stories as well. So I hope some of them we get back to uh, one day. In fact, Reb Shamshin Rafal Hirsch was once considered uh, as a candidate to be the chief rabbi. He did not win in the elections. He didn't even come close. But, um, But he was a candidate. He was a serious candidate for the position of Chief Rabbi of the British Empire. The one who won that time actually was Rabbi Nathan Adler, who goes on to become one of the most important Orthodox leaders in British Jewish history. He actually basically founded the United Synagogue, and he oversaw a time of great change in the history of, of, of Jews in England when the Rothschilds first um, you know, reached, uh, um, got their titles and went into... Parliament and the House of Lords and a couple of different generations of Rothschilds. He was the chief rabbi for 45 years in the 19th century during the Victorian era, and um, and and he played a major role in in British Jewish history. Most of the British chief rabbis of the Empire or the Commonwealth, as it later became known, were born in Germany. 
Interesting. Like I pointed out, some were born in Poland. Uh, rabbi Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the subject of our discussion, is only the third chief rabbi in British history to have been born and raised in England. Uh, there was Rabbi Solomon Herschel in the early 1800s. He was the first one. And then later on in the 20th century was Rabbi Israel Brody in the immediate post-war. Um, so, and then Rabbi Sachs was the third and only one. That, I think, I believe the current one was born in South Africa, if I'm not mistaken, Rabbi Mervis. But, um, but, but they're mostly born in Germany over the years. Very few that were products of England. So in that way, Rabbi Sachs has another, you know, quite unique uh, role that he plays. Um, so the 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 uh, office of the chief rabbi represents what's known as the United Synagogue. And the United Synagogue does not uh, is not an all encompassing of the entire Jewish community of England, which makes it even more interesting. Um, there's other Jewish communities in England that are not represented by the United Synagogue. So ostensibly, the chief rabbi is not a fit, at least in an official sense, a, a representing them. Again, one of the uniquenesses of Rabbi Sachs was that his influence and impact not only did it go well beyond the confines of of a, his, the limited United Synagogue representation, but it also went well beyond the British England. It was his, his impact was worldwide. It was not limited to his, uh, his office, his official position, his official office of, of the chief rabbi. But basically the United Synagogue, which is more of a topic of when we ever, when we get back to another installment on British Jewry, it's the Union of British Orthodox Jewish Synagogues. It represents the central Orthodox uh, movement with over 60 congregations. It is the largest synagogue body in, in England and in all of Europe, really. Um, the spiritual leader is the chief rabbi, um, and, and it's recognized by the government. Um, and But it's recognized by the government, but this rabbinical authority is not recognized by close to half of British Jews. Um, which I'll get to in a second. The United Synagogue was mandated by an act of parliament, so it's really a government body in 1870, which gave it formal recognition, which is during the time of that Rabbi Nathan Adler was the rabbi who was officially the chief rabbi of the British Empire. Leaders of the United Synagogue included Nathan Rothschild, who served as president in the early 1900s. Um, at the time of its inception, the United Synagogue was the dominant force in Jewish communal and religious organization, though, um, as immigrants came from Eastern Europe in the late 19th century and early 20th century, so they brought with them, you know, uh, their traditions from Eastern Europe, Hasidic Jews, and and then the opposite side of the spectrum, you know, uh, secularism, form Judaism. So um, the, uh, the, the, there's, there's, on one hand, to the right, of the United Synagogue is the Union of Orthodox Hebrew Congregations, which is more Eastern European, more religious officially. And then on the other side, there's um, Reform and Liberal Ju Judaism and others to what we would call the left. So this kind of is the central uh, uh, body of British Jewry. In 1970, the United Synagogue celebrated its cent cent centenary um, celebration, and events included a ceremony in the presence of the Queen of England. Uh, this was the first time that the Queen had, at had attended an event held by the Anglo-Jewish community, although the Duke of Edinburgh had previously attended the 300th commemoration of the return of Jews to England during the period of Oliver Cromwell, but the Queen herself, uh, this was the first time. 
So if we get down to to Rabbi Sachs himself, so he, who's the one who's later to become Rabbi, Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, comes from a, a family in London, very active in the Jewish community, um, but also very typical of the many Jewish families in London of the 1950s. He went. He attended a non-Jewish primary and secondary school, and then proceeded on eventually to Cambridge to study philosophy. And now I seem to remember reading in one of his books. I tried to locate it and double check before I I uh, spoke speaking about it now on the podcast, but I was not able to find it. So I hope I'm getting the facts right and that my memory is not playing trips tricks on me. So I hope I'm saying this correctly. This is as far. As, uh, as my memory serves. At Cambridge, he eventually chose to wear a head covering. And at one point, he was crossing a yard on campus, and it was a windy day, so he was holding his yarmulke in his hand. It wasn't on his head. And some non-Jewish professor who he was acquainted with confronted him that he saw him without his head covering. And he said, you, you know, you're, you disappointed me. You're betraying your own convictions. And he explained to him, it was windy. I was holding it in my hand. But this taught the young Sachs, how the outside world respects you for you keeping to your convictions. While very often the Jewish self-perception is that you don't want to stand out, you don't want to look different, you don't want to flaunt your identity on the outside. On the other hand, you see, he saw, he was, you know, he experienced this, that they actually respected him for his convictions. They would be disappointed if he had foregone uh, on his uh, on his value system. So that was uh, a an important uh, moment. But what really changed his life was the 1967 Six-Day War, which was quite common, actually, for uh, young Jews at the time. It had a profound effect on him, instilled him with Jewish pride and Zionism as a result. And he makes this decision to explore his Jewish identity, his Judaism. So where does he go? He goes to the United States for a summer. What better place to explore Jewish identity? And he decides that what he really was doing, he was decides to seek out inspiration from the great Jewish leaders of his day over there in the United States. And the two of the ones who he met with, who made a very you know, a big impact and when he met with them, was the Lubavitcher Rebbe of Menachem Mendel Schneerson and the Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, Rabbi Soloveitchik of Yeshiva University. So he summarized, Rabbi Sachs summarized the impact of those meetings by saying that the Rebbe challenged me to lead and Rav Salvechik challenged me to think. And, and Rabbi Sachs' thought and leadership were to go on and change the world upon, uh, uh, change the Jewish world upon we had such a decisive global impact over the course of the next more than a half a century as a result of these meetings that he had with these uh, two great people over the course of that fateful summer. So he embarks on a, um, on a, you know, an intensive uh, rabbinical education, yeshiva education, following Cambridge. Among other places, he attended another historic and now defunct institution, London's Eitz Chaim Yeshiva. It was a yeshiva in Golders Green in London. It was founded at the turn of the century, and it was associated with the aforementioned Union of Orthodox Hebrew Congregations, and uh, it was founded in London's East End. Um, Rebel Lapian was the mashkiach there in the for the, all the years he was in England, for about 25 years, a quarter of a century before he moved to Israel in 1950. So Rebel was the mashkiach there. So I had some prestigious individuals who were there earlier on. Um, the previous chief rabbi before Rabbi Sachs, Rabbi Lord Emanuel 
Jacobovitz was also an alumnus of Eitz Chaim Yeshiva in London. It's funny, because there seem to have been loads of yeshivas throughout Jewish history named Eitz Chaim. It was uh, probably the most common name. I once made a list, a partial list, like 10 or 15 yeshivas named Eitz Chaim. Either way, he, he has a rabbinical position eventually in the Western Marble Arch Synagogue in central London, which was an old, old uh, Orthodox synagogue, found, the original one before, you know, in, its, in, its, uh, in its original founding was in 1761 uh, in Westminster. And, uh, and it, it was a, a uh, it was, official name was Hevra Kadisha Shelgemilas Chasadim Westminster. And it was started by a fellow named Wolf Leipman, who was a prosperous immigrant merchant from St. Petersburg in Russia. And then in 1826, they built this beautiful, elaborate edifice, and they renamed it the Western Synagogue, and eventually merged with another one and became the Western Marble Arch Synagogue. So one of his earliest, uh, one of Rabbi Sachs' earliest rabbinical positions was at this place for uh, several years. He was also the principal of Jews College in London for a bunch of years. And then he becomes eventually the chief rabbi from 1991 to 2013, succeeding another famous individual, Rabbi Lord Emanuel Jacobowitz, who's a fascinating individual, is also a Yaki Jew, a German Jew, arrives in England uh, escaping the Nazis. Um, and uh, so, so uh, um, Rabbi Sachs uh, succeeds him. Um, he's eventually knighted and made into a lord and he becomes this prolific author, writing book after book after book, over well over 30, 35 books. Um, he's also, in his capacity as the chief rabbi, the chief rabbi is nominally... Uh, um, the head of the London Besden, uh, not directly. There's also an Av Besden who, who runs the day-to-day affairs of the Besden, but this, but the London Besden is also an August uh, body with a long history. One of the more famous individuals associated with the London Besden was Rechatzk Labramsky, who served at its helm uh, for several decades earlier in the 20th century when he escaped from Soviet Russia. So he's associated with you know almost all of the mainstream religious institutions of British Jewry. But he's really also operating on the world stage. He was, and and what's fascinating about him is that at the same time he was very personal. Uh, he was very warm. He made time for individuals to counsel, to advise. He would encourage young leadership. He he had a big focus on youth and youth groups and events like that. Um, so he had an impact in several areas, both in Torah scholarship and his books and lectures worldwide, and the leadership of the British Jewish community. Uh, a, a, to a certain extent, a leadership position of the Jewish people at large. He was also um, had a unique uh, distinction of being almost like the face of the Jewish people to the outside world. To a certain extent, he also was was known uh, again it's through his books, primarily uh, through uh, through his creativity and through his writings and Jewish philosophy. But since I don't know anything about philosophy. Um, so what, what struck me as interesting about, uh, personally, as Rabbi Sachs was his, was his uh, knowledge and fascination with Jewish history. And he not only was quite knowledgeable of Jewish history, not only did he attach great importance to studying Jewish history, but he also um, used it very often as an analogy and uh, in, for too many lessons he was imparting, but also he, he uh, in illustrations for it also, but he, he also... Uh, so in, in in a philosophical sense, which which is how 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 the Jewish people how are they seen through history and how they develop through history and how 
you know, God is the God of history to a certain extent, um, you know, among other things. <laughs> but uh, but how, how, how God is to be seen throughout history. And uh, he used it a lot. He used, he used that as, as, a, as a, you know, benchmark very often, which I found interesting. Um, and then more than being a chapter in Jewish history, he seemed to have been one of those rare individuals who actually made history himself. Um, so there was actually a, a, a boy in the mirror I knew who was you know, quite a deep thinker and, and he was well-read, he was an intellectual, but he had lots of great questions and he used to schmooze with me a lot. And of course, I didn't have anything to, to add to him. I, I couldn't answer anything and... Um, but he used to schmooze with me and tell me that he read lots of Rabbi Sachs's books. And what was fascinating was that this young American boy studying in Mir Yeshiva, you know, emailed his Rabbi Sachs's office, and he actually received a response from him. Here's this very incredibly busy man, and this total stranger, a young man, and they had a bit of a correspondence. See, they corresponded for, I don't know how many times, but how long it lasted... But it was uh, amazing how uh, an individual like that can can respond to just some completely random uh, uh, someone out there. One of the things he was pretty good at was he is. I, I, I've heard people refer to it as sexisms. He had these uh, wise sayings, observations, stories, analogies, metaphors, pearls of wisdom, almost like these like instant cliches. He always had something wise, concise, and literally profound to say about almost any given situation, which was quite talented because it it would bring out a a strong message in instead of you know rambling on like I tend to do just in one sentence, one like good one line that you can remember and it resonates and as well. So I'll just end off with one of my favorites, which I share with almost every group that I guide in Europe. Uh, fascinating insight. He he uh, he he had a question about the Haggadah that we recite on the night of Pesach. That we start off by saying, uh, This is the poor man's bread. The matzah is referred to as the poor man's bread. It's you know pretty lousy bread, um, not very impressive as far as flavors go. And then what, what do we say following that? Uh, we're inviting the world into our home and to partake in this horrible bread. So it's kind of, you know, a little, a little interesting. You know, imagine a person says, hey guys, I have really lousy food in my house. Why don't you all come over for a dinner? So the question is that he was asking was, why, why is that the introduction to the invitation for, to, for dinner? So he, he related a story, it came from Primo Levi, the, the great uh, Holocaust survivor who, who also wrote so well, and if this is man, and his other books, um, about his experiences in the Holocaust, an Italian Jewish chemist who survived Auschwitz, and, and, and his memoirs is one of the classics of Holocaust literature. It's fascinating. Um, you know, most people are familiar with it. Um, but Primo Levi describes um, his liberation. And uh, what the Nazis did was on January 17, 1945, they, they, they led the, the overwhelming majority of the inmates at Birkenau on a death march, over 60,000 inmates were led out of Birkenau on a death march back to uh, camps in Germany. And here um, there were only about 8,000 prisoners left. They were too sick, too weak, they had hidden, whatever it was. And 10 days later, January 27, 1945, it's these 8,000 prisoners, or several thousand, I don't know if I'm getting the exact number right, 
um, who are liberated by the Soviets. Um, so most of the prisoners are not liberated by the Soviets because they had been taken out on this death march. And Primo Levi was one of those uh, several thousand uh, prisoners who were left, inmates who were left in Auschwitz um, and, and were liberated by the Soviets 10 days later. So what happened during those 10 days? You have 10 days here that they're kind of in limbo. The SS have left, the Soviets aren't there yet, everyone's sick and starving, malnutrition, diseased and dying, basically, and hoping that the Soviets arrive in time. So he describes, so what do they do? And Primo Levi naturally you know, explains that they looked for food, and they, now there's no one going to shoot them if they sneak into the kitchen to try to see if there's any food left, which is exactly what they did. Now, some of the inmates were so weak and so racked with disease that they didn't have the strength to crawl to the to the kitchen or where the wherever the food was stored in this other barracks and they remained in their barracks uh, in pain on their on their in, in, on their on their wooden slats and there were prisoners who made it to this the the, the kitchen or the the, uh, the the place where the food was and uh, primo Levi was one of them and they bring back the food to the barracks, and those who had been too weak to go ask them, can you share some of your food with me? And Primo Levi describes that he shared, he took his food that he had gotten and obtained for himself, and he decided to go ahead and share it with others. And he says, at that moment, we became liberated, before the Soviets came, because here he had something of his own. Not only did he have something of his own, he had his own choice to make. He had his own decision to make. And he chose to share it with others. And he said, that's the definition. That's the meaning of freedom. That you're able to have something that a slave doesn't own anything. And a slave can't make any choices. And a slave can't make any decisions. So he's not capable of doing any of that. So freedom means that there's something of my own that I share with, that I can decide and go ahead and, and execute that decision by sharing with others. So therefore, Rabbi Sachs uh, took that analogy from If This Is Man by Primo Levi about the Holocaust, and he extrapolates from that this idea, this profound idea, to Halach Ma'anya in the Haggadah, and he says, we're going to say, this is poor bread, this is a poor man's bread, it's lousy bread, but we're free tonight, we're not slaves anymore, and therefore, I can share it with you, and that's the definition, and that's the meaning of freedom. So I hope you'll all join this event in uh, Rabbi Sachs' memory should be very interesting and enjoyable. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com. For questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. And I hope you enjoyed.